This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Anders, welcome to Building Blocks. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you, uh, to get to hear about your journey into the crypto space. Um, by the way, I should say, you've been on Real Vision multiple times. I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, uh, but one of the favorite interviews that I've ever done uh, during the years I've been at Real Vision was your visual uh, walkthrough of blockchain based on a demo you built that I think is just such an incredibly powerful way for people to visualize and understand how blockchain technology fundamentally works. Thank you. Yeah, it was that was, uh, that was fun because it was the first time we actually it's two demos and we put them both together to make a single presentation of everything. It was the first time I'd done that. So that was cool. Yeah. And it just turned out incredible. And I thought that the response that we got from our viewers uh, on Real Vision on YouTube, uh, was just so extraordinary. You know, uh, this is kind of a bit about where your journey and my journey intersect. Um, I should say when uh, I was working at Coindesk back in 2017, I was really struggling to get my head around the underlying technology that powered blockchains. And I actually came across your demo on YouTube uh, doing research about it. And literally watching that demonstration changed the way I saw blockchain forever. I was finally able to visualize the internal mechanics of how the technology functioned. You, uh, you, uh, <laughs> you paint me up very, very, uh, very well. I'm not quite sure I deserve it, but uh, uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was that was actually was the result of a of a project I had done with MIT that uh, that I, I kind of realized I, I I how do you explain this I can't explain it because it's so bizarre so alien to anything anyone has done before that uh, you know I really had to kind of take a step back and and sit down and say well how would I explain this you know to, to myself uh, of five right. years ago or something like that yeah right. and that was the result. So talking of taking a step back, after all, this is your story, not mine. You teased a little <laughs> bit about uh, teaching blockchain at MIT. I believe yeah. you were the first professor in the United States to teach a seminar on blockchain at the college level. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your background, what you did before you got into the blockchain space. Yeah, everybody has their bizarre sort of uh, underpinning. Mine was... I started early in New York. I was uh, working at Dow Jones, and I uh, uh, so I was very interested in in finance. I was doing completely different stuff, though. I was working on three uh, D animation, essentially uh, real time visualization, market visualization stuff. Um, so I was always interested in in finance, but and and of course, you know, the internet was was happening. This is like the the late nineties. And the internet was happening, and and uh, I was just very interested in in how the internet uh, worked and kind of proliferated. So so I was 
always looking at existing industries that were being disrupted in one way or another by the internet. And, and where that ultimately ended was uh, uh, void. You know, this is how, how do you uh, do communication, do audio communication over the internet? So voice right. over the internet was a thing. So I, I went off to uh, work with uh, actually a friend of mine from high school who started a company called Bandwidth.com. And uh, so I, I worked there for many years and, and ran R&D for it. And then hmm. what ended up happening is, you know, the, what is the phone company? It's just like you are your phone number. I am my phone number. And we trust the phone company to make my phone ring when you call me. Right, so it's like a centralized database that that you're. you're it's a permission database. You kind of pay to be in it, pay to use it. But at the end of the day, you know, just talking back and forth. Well, that's the internet. You can kind of get that for a fixed price. You know, you don't pay right. per minute to to use the internet. So uh, I realized that that central piece, figuring out who is what phone number, was pretty much exactly the same problem Bitcoin. Uh, was was designed to answer. I just actually had a very similar conversation uh, with Alex Mashinsky from Celsius Network, who was also involved very early in voice over IP. And he made many of the same comparisons and metaphors that you just did. Ah, interesting. I have not talked to him. <laughs> That'd be interesting. I'd love to hear the the, the comments. I mean, it's, it's actually telecom, you know, you keep, keep seeing it pop up here and there. Uh, you know, Solana, the guy that... Uh, yeah, um, started Solana was in telecom, and yeah, he did, he did multiplexing on uh, like CDMA networks, right? That was his yeah. background. It's yeah. fascinating to see. Yeah, it's like two, yeah, 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 real time communications on on uh, yeah, exactly how that how that really kind of well, I, you know, if you think about what happened there, you know, the internet, and this is like a you know kind of a best effort network. We throw a packet out there, hopefully it gets to the other side. If it doesn't, we kind of you know there are tricks we play to kind of cover for you and, and uh, make it work. And we kind of reorder packets and things like that. And that's what the work was about. Um, right. But then, you know, it, as it turns out, those kinds of things are now that's like table stakes. You just get that. Right. Well, I was realizing that the table stakes here, uh, you know, with a decentralized, uh, essentially consensus system is, well, maybe the gatekeeper is sort of no longer necessary there. And that, that would present... Uh, sort of an existential threat. So I dove in, um, mm. uh, and and I had, I think it was in uh, 2010, July of 2010. I I saw a Slashdot story about this brand new thing called Bitcoin, and I and I dove in from there. And I pretty much stopped doing anything else, and all I did was look at this. And after a while, uh, you know, I'm working at Bounce.com. David Morkin, the guy that that uh, is the CEO, um, he says, uh, you know. You, you this you know you you needed to tell me what disrupted you know what could possibly disrupt our industry uh but this thing you know this thing is really interesting you kind of got to run with it right so i so i did and i i left circle and i sorry i left bandwidth and i went to a company called circle right uh, and they were just starting up and and obviously circle is directly in crypto assets. And uh, it was, you know, there was a like a playground from then on. So (laughs) that's the that's like the quick story. What was it that you found so compelling about Bitcoin that led you down that rabbit hole? 
Because I got back to the, the, the finance, that, the love of finance. Uh, and suddenly here is finance for the internet. Okay. It was, you know, it's kind of sort of just at the level of digital gold. It's not really at the level of DeFi yet or, or any of the more, you know, complex constructs. But here was the beginning of it. And here was a way to, uh, you know, use this untrusted network to garnish a measure of trust and be able to sort of move forward uh, and, and build upon that, you know, kind of construct them upon that. So, so I, I dove in, I mean, you can, you can apply a lot of the things that you learn in the traditional industry and uh, how you make things, uh, you know, work 24 by seven, 365, you know, production grade, uh, withstand DDoS attacks, you know, all of these kinds of things needed to be, you, you know, you, you need to have those things in order to uh, sort of deploy a service on top of this, uh, decentralized trust network and allow, you know, money to essentially connect with the traditional financial uh, system. I'd done a lot of connecting systems to older systems uh, in my telecom days. And so right. here was just like, all right, now now we're not talking about, uh, you know, going back to ATM and switches and whatever. Rather, we're talking about, okay, well, how do we get ACH and SWIFT and, and other uh, networks to, to uh, interact with uh, digital assets like Bitcoin? And Ethereum and all. So, yeah, I, I totally forget what your question was, but I, I hope I answered it. That's the beauty of this podcast. We get so engrossed <laughs> yeah. in the conversation, we forget the question. I wanted to sort of call back, you know, you talk about obviously your love of finance, but your background actually is in computer science. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. So traditionally computer science trained, but uh, always curious and interested in in other things. I had uh, I had a, really it was my grandfather's best friend from kindergarten when he was growing up he was he was in new york and he was in the uh the finance industry and he kind of early on you know just took me to the office one day pretty much you know i don't know i'm like 14 years old or whatever and he's got the you know his little stock system and like he's showing me charts and how you value companies and so it was always uh, somewhat of a hobby for me uh, when i got in to working in the financial, working in Wall Street in, in the financial industry, I was always kind of tangential. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't working on, you know, models or, or things like that. I was always working on, uh, uh, you know, kind of systems having to do with, uh, like at Dow Jones, I was working uh, for WBIS, which was uh, a TV station actually inside Dow Jones, an over the air TV station they had bought. So I built this 3D animation system to put. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average on Dow Jones Television. We kind of calculated in real time, or as real time as you could get in the late nineties. Um, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the connection there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, now. Of course, you're the uh, principal software architect uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Tell us a little bit about that, what you're doing, and how it interfaces with some of these uh, blockchain-based systems that we've been talking about. 
Yeah. So, uh, so there's something brand new here, right? It is this uh, ability to to uh, you know come to uh, agreement on who owns how much of what. Building those pieces, though, there's you know that relies on a lot of cryptographic uh, uh, you know constructs like primitives, uh, public and private key pairs, signing things like this. Uh, so. If we were to build a system that uh, you know relied on those same kind of underlying constructs, but didn't have the delay that coming to broad consensus, uh, uh, you know, on on what the state of you know the money is, what what could a system like that do? Like how how could you like scale that up? Like, in other words, what if you were to take uh, a system like Bitcoin and take all the pieces out of it that had anything to do with the the consensus, but rather make all of the pieces just run as fast as they possibly could and just say, okay, consensus will be, you know, if I say so, it is the way it is. So what we're doing at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is we're building a system that does that, that's a really extremely high-speed transaction processor. And, you know, it's, it's in the millions of transactions per second. Um, millions. But it... it yeah, millions. Yeah, and 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 it's as as far as we've tested, it kind of it seems to scale linearly. So you can pretty much just add more machines and make it go faster. So uh, you know, at some point, you're going to run into the the ultimate speed of the internet problems that that will that will limit it. But it's it seems to be linearly scalable, um, which is pretty interesting because. Uh, at least the way most cryptocurrencies are built today, you can't really you can't scale them linearly. You can scale them up to a point, but uh, then a, coming to agreement on what the the state of the network is becomes a bottleneck because you basically do that globally. If you rather you do that, maybe I'm getting too too deep into it. But like if you do, I'm, I'm like really interested in the in the. Uh, uh, you, you know the what ifs. Uh, what what can you do with this technology that that you know you couldn't do before? So if you kind of strip away some of the the basic restrictions and let it go, like what do you really get? Um, so from a technology perspective, you can you can scale these systems in ways you never thought possible. Um, most pieces of this problem can be parallelized, even the ones that you thought had to be serialized. Because ultimately, you know, you can spend a dollar in California and I can spend a dollar in New York, and it doesn't matter if they happen at the same time. They can essentially be spent in parallel. So, you know, why do you have to come to global consensus on like what the state of all the bills is at any moment in time? You kind of don't. doesn't matter which one went first or second. Um, so, so we're you know we're looking at that, and we're looking at other things, um, you know, specifically like what does the technology allow uh, for privacy? Uh, and privacy is an incredibly important topic, and um, there's a lot that this technology can do in this area. It's a devilishly hard thing to kind of suss out what you know what what uh, the sort of the the positives without you know without opening up a way to like take advantage of it is. Um, but, uh, you know, we're doing things like that and looking at programmability and, and stuff like that. Our, our research is open, by the way. 
Um, it's on it's on GitHub. This whole system that I've been talking about has been open sourced. It's called uh, uh, Open CDBC. And if you go to uh, GitHub.com slash MIT dash DCI, uh, you can see Open CDBC TX as one of the projects, and that's the, that's the code base that that does all of this. So let's talk a little bit about some of the applications of this technology or potential applications. You talk about some of the very exciting developments that we're seeing on the technology side, uh, parallelization, parallelization, the ability to scale things uh, with linearly with the number of nodes on the network, these sort of very exciting technological components. What might some of the real-world applications be of some of the breakthroughs uh, that you guys are doing uh, in this work? Well, I don't know. I, we'll we'll see what what ends up happening, but ultimately, uh, I think the 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 finding might be that uh, there, there's there's some uh, work being done, and like, well, how do you how do you shard the data set? Basically, we have this giant data set, and we're all paying some fee to to alter things. If the entire data set has to be in a single computer you know, that, that, that represents kind of a bottleneck and you might want to address it. So there are many ways to, to shard out that data set. Well, another thing that you can consider to shard out would be the dependency graph of a transaction. If I'm sending you money and nobody else is sending either of us money, totally parallelizable. If I'm sending you money and I'm sending somebody else money and I'm receiving money, and if between those two, the receive doesn't come in, so therefore my balance essentially goes negative, uh, that, that you can't really parallelize. You need to like – so what that might show is that you, you could uh, you know, maybe classify some set of smart contracts that do thing, a certain thing in, in, in specific ways uh, as parallelizable mm. as long as they fit into certain you know, things. So you might be able to uh, – Build smart contracts that uh, you know d- don't rely on the assumption that everyone has a global view of what everything is, and it's totally consistent every single time. If you can release that, you could probably architect smart contracts in such a way that you, you could take advantage of a lot more parallelism without you know without sharding really um, you know. If, if you shard, you have to kind of make a way for the data to jump over the, the you know, from one shard to another, or at least aggregate data from multiple shards. There might be other ways to do this. Um, so hopefully f- things like that fall out. Um, there might be some interesting privacy stuff as well. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, it remains to be seen. And that's the fun part about making a an open source project. Like, People from anywhere can come and work on it as long as they're interested in it. You know, if they if they have an interest and they can, so we're essentially, hopefully, going to be able to use the best ideas in the world. And uh, right. you know, MIT is essentially quarterbacking the uh, all of the the different uh, parties that are working on this, um, and and they're a great partner for us. But it's uh, you know, the, the sky is the limit, and you never know what you're gonna actually end up with you know it's always laughable what people think about the future when you when you look at it in the future and see what we don't have flying cars but we have this ability to send any data from any person to any other person on earth for free like what that's it's a you know it's hard to think about 
what what that would have been uh, right. like, and then it's hard to quantify that. Like, why why is that progress and why is that value? It's hard to kind of say. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. You know, well, one of the potential applications, and it's kind of sort of stamped right on the package uh, in Open CBDC, is <laughs> yeah. the potential uh, for central yeah. bank digital currencies. I know this is uh, something that you're involved in in your journey. How do you think about CBDCs and what some of the promises? and risks potentially might be for that technology. Yeah, well, I mean the the uh, so I'm I'm a I'm a technical researcher, right? I'm interested by the technology. There's, you know, raging debates going on and uh, you know, I, I don't get the luxury to have an opinion on on those things uh, because you know it, it, they're they're very fraught and and right. people you know have have very valid concerns. Um, what what I you know at the end of the day I'm I'm most interested in like what does the technology allow uh, you know for a uh, you know an asset like a dollar to be able to do uh, right. you know. Uh, one of the ways that I explain, because, you know, you, you do get crypto skeptics every once in a while, and they're like, well, there is nothing really valuable here. And, and you know, you, one simple way to answer that is like, well, look, there's, you know, more than a trillion dollars worth of value here. That's not nothing. Right. Like, I could, I could understand, you know, a million, few million dollars, billion dollars of, you know, euphoria or delusion, hundred billion you know, trillion dollars, eh, it's kind of hard to write that off as, so there must be something here. So what happens? Right. Well, why is it, why would there be something there? Well, look at like what everyone is, uh, you know, what, what, what happens in finance? It races toward more efficient, cheaper, like, you know, more capable, more efficient and cheaper. And that's what's happening here. We're finding ways to do the the thing that finance needs done more cheaply, quicker, uh, you know, more efficiently, um, and and I would argue more more securely ultimately. So you know, it, it's probably something around that. I'm I'm really interested in like what the technology can do to to get us to a faster, cheaper, you know, like lower the bar, let more people. Uh, into the system and, and able to take advantage of what it shows, what it has. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So one of the recurrent themes in this conversation and along your journey has been this idea of open software, open source software. This is something that people in this space are very passionate about, but also something that I feel like folks with non-technical backgrounds uh, probably don't really have a good sense of. Talk a little bit about open source software and the role that it's played in your journey. Yeah, so I owe most of what I know to the fact that, you know, really, Linus Torvalds open sourced Linux. Uh, that that was you know th that was really the first major open source project that I dove into, and this is before uh, before the web. 
Um, And, you know, everybody says the web, they mean the internet. Well, you know, the internet is basically a a network of computers and uh, you had to pay for operating systems to make them work. And suddenly, you know, there was this implementation of essentially of Minix that, that was done in the open. Um, Okay. And that's just a kernel. I know there are all the other tools that were also open sourced and I'm kind of glopping Linux and all the tools together, but just, you know, bear with me. So suddenly uh, if I had a question, like how is this, uh, you know, object represented on the file system where well, I could literally go to the code that right. that made that object and put it on the file system and understand uh, how it works. You know, previous to this, you kind of needed standards and you needed to publish a thing about it. But with the internet, suddenly, you know, it became like almost a chicken and egg thing, which comes first, the standard or the uh, implementation. And you don't get really good standards unless you have you know, a lot of experience with the implementation. So a lot of times the implementation turns into the standard and, you know, uh, so that, that was key. Uh, just, it was like turning the lights on in the room and you could actually look at the, the, the system and see how it all worked. Um, and then you get to, you know, you, then you put an open source project out there and you get to find these people that are doing something with it that you never imagined. You're like, oh, yeah, no, I, I guess it does fit that space. Maybe we can, you know, if I do these few little tweaks and changes, then, you know, then, then it'll fit that too. And it does. And then suddenly you get, you know, a whole swath of other talent in there. And then it becomes like a really a community kind of management problem. Uh, and not to say like all these communities work perfectly. They don't. Like ultimately they fork. But I, I sort of see that as a benefit, uh, that as a feature. Uh, they fork and they go and they say, okay, well, we're going to operate under different rules or, or different um, concerns. Like we, we really care about this and this and not so much about that. And then they go with it. And, you know, maybe working on a CDBC is sort of similar to that. It's like, all right, let's say that we get consensus instantly. What can all of the pieces do in terms of raw speed? You know, to, so that's just a really technically interesting you know, thing that you, that you get. And then, you know, lastly on open source, there's some, um, uh, I, you know, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't say that open source software is really the most secure way to write software. Because if you are, a, or if you're secure by obscurity, you, you close the software and whatever, and it's just a moment, just a matter of time until, after a bunch of hunting and pecking, somebody's going to find like a gaping security hole right. as opposed to, you know, uh, having it o- developed in the open. And then you just, right. you know, people notice those things early on and they fix them and patch them. So that's, that's a huge, huge benefit. Yeah. A few years ago, I did an interview uh, for Real Vision with my friend Alex Rass. And I think he had the definitive quote about this when he said, uh, the problem with being the smartest guy in the room is there's always another room. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I have never been the smartest guy in the room, but uh, I, I've found that to be true too. Uh, there are many other rooms that uh, that are stunningly, you know, elegantly constructed, and like, oh, it's incredible. What and, you know, I've worked with a lot of programmers in, uh, in my time, and, and the ones that you really admire, like I go from A to B to C. The ones that go from A to C and they just don't seem to even need B, it's incredible. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, yeah. I have the best job in the world, Anders, because my job is to be <laughs> the dumbest guy in every room and to get to have these conversations <laughs> with people who are much smarter than I am uh, and to help bring these ideas, frankly, these ideas that are really shaping the world uh, to a broader audience so that people who don't have the computer science background, people who don't have PhDs in macroeconomics can come listen to these stories, listen to these narratives and get a sense of the forces that are shaping our world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, if ever the opportunity opens up for me to interview you, I'm going to do it because I, you've, you've spoken to a lot of people. Actually, what I think, what, what you do really well, if I can take over your podcast for just a second, is um, frame just the piece of information that, that you kind of want to get. And then, then you, you sit back and, you know, somebody says something, but then at the very end, you, you like really elegantly tie the two pieces together and, and marry it into the next question. And, and you've spoken to like the most interesting minds in the world, the most up and coming, you know, talent uh, in the world. And with that ability to do it, like, I, I think your story is probably fascinating. So I don't know, I, I, I volunteer to interview if you want some. Well, Anders, one of the few advantages of having chronic ADHD is you were always completely 100% in that moment. <laughs> Well, we'll we'll do it then. <laughs> I'm in, 100%. We'll get you there. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, Anders, as we come to the end of this conversation, we've covered a lot of ground, talked about a lot of different aspects of this space in, in relation to your journey in digital assets. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, first of all, and I probably should have said this up top, what I say are my, not the views of the Federal Reserve or anything like that. It's, these are my personal views. Um, I, I, you know, would re be remiss if I didn't say that. I don't know. I, I, I always say that this, you know, what's happening right now in the world with um, uh, digital assets, like in the cryptocurrency space in general, uh, is is you know, it, it's really generation defining, and it's. Uh, you know, not not just generational wealth, but but really the way uh, I believe society will be coordinated in time. So it makes all the sense in the world to 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 dive in, to find the rabbit hole that most interests you, and dive into it because we need all we need all the talent that there is. And if if you know if anything that's uh, that I've said or whatever you know can like if I can point to resources or whatever to kind of help you do that, I, I definitely want to do it because um, yeah, the, there's just so much fundamental stuff happening right now, and um, you know you ought to be on for the ride. Honors a fantastic conversation as always. Thank you so much for joining us here on Building Blocks. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, inviting me and uh, look forward to whenever the next time is. Absolutely. And thank you for listening, everyone. All right. That's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues.